Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The word of the Lord. In his famous essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says or writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This morning, as we continue talking about relationships, we're going to be looking at three words, two of which I'd rather not talk about. Friendship, the easy one, freedom, and sex. I now have every 13-year-old's attention in here. As we start thinking about these things, this is not meant to be the concluding statement on everything you need to hear about this. It's to open up a conversation on a topic in particular that is very relevant to our culture that is very powerful in our humanity, and that we as Christians often get wrong, and that much of the world around us is very confused about. We're going to start with one that's a little bit easier to hit on, and that's freedom. In Corinthians, Paul writes, and he's quoting a Corinthian saying, a Corinthian maximum, I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything. Now, this was part of the Corinthian culture. This was a saying that was common to the Corinthians, whether they were Christians or not. It was part of their cultural assumption that they were a very um, kind of lifestyle liberal culture where they did what they wanted, which is a great parallel to our culture today. 
In the 21st century, what do we value in the West? We value personal freedom. Part of that is that our American ideal of liberty, but part of that has been melded in with radical individualism and selfishness. I'm borrowing a lot from a book by a guy named Dale Keene called Sex in the Eye World, which is really about relationships. And much of what I'll be saying is things that I've pulled from him, so I'm not even going to quote him because it's kind of a mix of where my thoughts and some of the things I've read from him in Scripture blend in. But some of the things he says includes this, that right now the goal in our culture is to maximize individual freedom. Our cultural goal is to maximize individual freedom, except for one rule. The one rule is do not infringe upon another's rights. Or if I was going to put this in a simpler way, do whatever you want, except say someone is wrong. And there's a basic assumption underlying this. The assumption is this. Increased personal freedom will lead to increased happiness and fulfillment. The assumption is this. Increased personal freedom will lead to increased happiness and fulfillment. And the question we're asking this morning is this. Is that really true? Does having no boundaries really increase our happiness and fulfillment? Is it actually better? You know, if we step back and look outside of ourselves at many other realms of life, boundaries create creativity and beauty, and there is freedom in them. We see this in the natural world that an eagle is meant to fly, to soar. If it burrows underground, it dies. A knife A knife can be used wrongly to kill somebody or rightly in the hands of a surgeon to bring life if they follow certain rules and order. The realm of music is a perfect example of this. Music is one of these realms where there is not a fine line between noise and music, although some of us might argue that there is, but there's boundaries within which music is produced to create harmony, melody, beauty. So listen to this piece by Miles Davis from The Birth of Cool as that famous trumpet player is is kind of just going off on his jazz riff here at the beginning. Miles Davis, now me. So which was better? Now, the reality is this. It's not even a question. One was fitting, even though there's a lot of freedom in Miles Davis playing, he was fitting within the realm of jazz and music and the rules and constraints that go into making music. I don't know how that thing works. I've never played a trumpet. That's the third time I've picked it up. And it shows. Is there greater fulfillment 
in doing what I want the way I want? Or is it possible that within some form of boundary and constraint, there's better music to be made? Is it possible that true freedom, the best life, is found in the ways and purposes of God, even if it constrains what I want to do, what I feel like doing? And that really begs the question, how do we know what is right or true or good? How do we know what is right or true or good? You know, several hundred years ago, actually just 50 to 60 years ago, and for 300 years from the enlightenment and through the scientific discovery period, the assumption was this, science could solve all of our problems. It started with the hard sciences discovering all sorts of things that brought technology into our world, and then that blended into the social sciences, and the social sciences, which blended into politics and democracy, and then eventually Marxism and some others, along with psychology and sociology, they thought that if we use observation and proof, we can solve all the world's problems. We can reach utopia, and it would look like the Jetsons. But somewhere about 50 or 60 years ago, and maybe World War II had something to do with this, trust in science fell apart for answering those sorts of questions. David Hume, a century before that, noted this about science. It can answer what is, but not what ought. Science can answer is, not ought. Let me make that simpler. Science can tell you how to make a nuclear warhead. It cannot tell you when, where, if you should use it. And so starting in the 60s and moving on from there to where we are today, people dismissed the scientific methodology as a way to figure out what's true, what's right, what's good, in the moral, ethical, and life direction sense. We still build so much on it, and technology is fantastic and opens so many doors medically and in ease of life, but it can't answer ought. How ought I to live? And so what have we turned to? The individual. Failure of science plus our absolute devotion to individual liberty has meant that the only way to know what is right and true and good is to look within. I and the final authority. And the challenge is this. It ends up being something like this when we talk about a biblical and Christian worldview. Can you imagine if when I was 16 years old, my dad bought me a new car for my 16th birthday. He handed me the keys, said, son, out in the driveway is your new car. I grabbed the keys and ran out the door. But Deep within me, I have this absolute love, love, love of the sound of metal scraping metal. I love the sound of metal scraping metal. And so what did I do with the keys? I went out and for hours upon hours, I just, you know, just scraped the metal. And about a few hours later, my dad came outside and said, how's the car? And he saw that what I had done is taken the keys and scratched the entire car for several hours. That's what I wanted to do with the keys. My dad comes along and says, that's not what the keys are for. I said, I don't care what the keys are for. This is how I want to use them. 
Is there any objective truth out there? Is there anything we can turn to to say how we ought to use the key? Or do we each just go on our own desires, interests, wants, feelings? Is there a better way to use our keys? And how could we even know? And this is where Christian theologians and philosophers would say, we need a reference point outside of ourselves. Because if we turn inward to answer all of our questions, if I am the final authority, there's nothing to root and ground me. There's no way I could even know who I am. Christianity, of course, says that reference point is God. And this is the basic statement. Do you want to know what is right and good and true? Do you want to understand why we're here and how to enjoy and live life to the full? Do you want to know how to make music and not noise? You need to know God and his purposes for us. So the basic question is this. Is it possible that true freedom and fulfillment is meant to be found in God, not in doing what I want or feel? So it's a basic question about what does it mean to be free, which then moves us to the one I'd really rather not talk about, sex. But we're going to talk about it. Sex is a primary issue in our pursuit of freedom. It's a primary issue in our culture, and it's a primary drive in all of us as human beings. In the Corinthian church, sexual permissiveness was a part of their culture. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about one Christian who was in sexual relations with his stepmom. In 1 Corinthians 6, in the passage that we read, he talks about prostitution. And the way that prostitution was done most of the time in that culture was shrine prostitutes. The temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was in in Corinth. And it it was believed at some points there were hundreds of prostitutes. And it, it was like this. Instead of coming up for communion, you went up for ritual sex. So it was completely culturally normative, even celebrated. In verses 9 through 11, which we didn't read, Paul gives a whole list of sexual possibilities and says, these two are outside the bounds of God's purposes for us. And of course, this challenges our culture's view, right? Our culture's view of sex is this. You can do whatever you want so long as you don't harm somebody. The key word is consensual. And the other piece is this. You cannot criticize or curtail what I want what anybody wants. To do so is is hateful and inhuman. And we feel this way, not only about sex, but about all of our choices. What I do with my money, how I raise my kids, my career choices, my religion. You just keep going. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't harm anyone. And the worst evil is for somebody to say that I'm wrong. And all of this makes sense, our view of sex, especially if the individual is authority and the only thing I have to go on is my feelings and my inner desires. If it's something that I like and it's something that I want and I find that it works, I must need it. And now is the time when we stop and say, so what is the Christian view of sex? 
And before you even enter that question, before we even talk about that, I need to admit that the church for centuries has been full of hypocrisy on this issue. They have claimed the moral high ground and lived duplicitously. We are wrong when we're not open about our own struggles sexually. I also need to say that the church needs to ask forgiveness because there are scores and scores and scores and scores of people who have been hurt and wounded deeply by the church's teaching and its approach by abuses, by people who have struggled and not found a place of love and acceptance. That the church needs to admit, and we as Christians need to admit, that all of us have a lot of brokenness. All of us carry a lot of baggage and a lot of hurt and a lot of shame. And yet the gospel is there for all of us. And you know what? Maybe there's one or two of you in here that don't need this, but all the rest of us do. We need forgiveness in the area of our sexual lives. We need healing, many of us. And in the same realm, the church has failed single people. We have not provided a place of love, a place to exist, a home and a family for people who are trying to be single or who by no choice of their own are single. It should not be a second-class citizenry, but we in the church have made it so. Because you know what? If you don't look like me, married with kids, then do you really fit? We don't say it, but it feels that way. And so in all of these areas, we as a church, and the church, need to say, I'm sorry. We are wrong. We need forgiveness and we don't have much moral ground to stand on. All that being said, the Bible is clear. God's purposes for sex are a man and a woman in lifelong covenant. That's what it says. It says it from Genesis to the end. Jesus articulates it, Paul articulates it, it is very clear. It's even hard for me to say that because I know that that is not culturally acceptable and that many of you disagree with that. The question is this, is that view believable? Is it even possible? Is it what is best? This is what Paul is building on. This assumption of our human sexuality when he starts talking in 1 Corinthians about why the Corinthians need to be very wise, he's pointing to the telos, the end or goal or aim in our sexuality, its purpose. And he says our purpose, even in our sexuality, is meant to be found in God. And he hits on a couple of different areas. He talks about our sexuality in relation to worship, in relation to our spiritual side, and in relation to the creation narrative and God's purposes for all of history. You know, one of the first things he says is that this whole sexuality thing is a worship issue. In verse 12, he writes, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. 
I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Sex is incredibly powerful. It is primary in our advertising campaigns, in medical research, in our entertainment world. The question Paul asks is, is it always beneficial? Is it always beneficial? We know that because of the power and nature of sex, it's not always beneficial. One in four in this room, if the statistics bear out, have dealt with sexual abuse. Every two minutes, another person in the U.S. is sexually assaulted. There are ramifications because sex is very powerful and it has powerful effects. Every year, every year in the U.S., according to the CDC, there are 20 million, 20 million new cases of STDs. There are effects. And even when legal and accepted and consensual, Paul warns, sex can master us. Nowhere is this more obvious than in pornography. Pornography is addictive. It has the same effect on the brain as cocaine does. In 2006, a study of global pornography industry said that the pornography industry in 2006, that's what, you know, eight, nine years ago, had brought in $97 billion, more than Google and Apple and Amazon and Netflix, etc., combined. The statistics are that over 87% of college males are viewing porn, 50% of them daily, 30-some percent of women. And the way pornography works is like a drug. It triggers the reward pathways in our brain that cause the release of dopamine, kind of that rush feeling that drugs also provide. And over the course of time, pornography rewires the pathways so that the user returns for the reward, much like the mouse going back for the cheese. But the problem is the brain begins to adjust, dulling our dopamine receivers because it's not used to this rush of dopamine. And so over the course of time, the brain dulls the receivers so it takes more and more to trigger the dopamine release, which means you have to do more and more and darker things. It is enslaving. And it's just one of the many rampant ways in which sex has power over us. Sex has become a god, if not the god, of our culture. I think it's a false god. I don't think that it alone can give us the joy and peace and fulfillment that it claims and promises. And I think that ultimately, as many of us have experienced, it has the power to enslave us. Paul starts off by saying, sex is a worship issue. And we need to begin by answering the question, who or what is really God? Who am I trusting for my salvation? Who or what am I turning to for heaven? Another thing Paul talks about is that sex is a spiritual issue. In verse 19, amongst other areas of this passage, he says that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Earlier, he says that we will be raised in resurrection 
in, in a New Testament understanding is the resurrection of the body and the soul. He's combining the two of these things. Now, in order to understand what Paul is trying to argue here about us being spiritual beings and how that ties into our sexuality, you have to realize that Greeks, Corinthian culture, Roman culture, denigrated the body and elevated the soul. So for them, what mattered was your soul. That was going to last, and what you did in your body didn't matter. So whether you had sex with a prostitute or whether you did anything else with your body, it didn't really matter. It was going to die and crumble up. Now today, we've done the exact opposite. Our 21st century culture does not elevate the soul and denigrate the body. It's quite the opposite. We have elevated the body, and we don't even believe we have a soul. We don't really buy into an eternity as a culture. And so our basic assumption is if there's going to be anything good, I've got to do it now. Because the only thing that really matters is what I can feel or taste or touch or smell now. The body is the only place to experience the greatest and deepest joys. Sex really is emotionally and physically powerful but many people turn to it as heaven, as if that is the only thing. Christianity comes in. Paul comes in and says, no, we are not just body or just soul. We are both. The Christian view is that we have a body and a soul. We are mental and physical beings, but we are also spiritual and eternal beings. And what Paul is saying is when we engage someone sexually, we are becoming one with them spiritually. And we know this to be intuitively true because it's the difference between somebody having been on a sports team of ours or somebody that in the past we did business with and someone in the past whom we had sex with. I might not even remember. We might not even remember that that person was on our baseball team. We will not forget the sexual side of things. Because there's something deeper going on there. And Paul is saying, what the Bible says, is that there is a long-term, possibly even eternal impact on us because when we enter in sexually, we're entering in spiritually with a person. Sex is a worship issue because we are spiritual beings. And ultimately, sex is meant to be grounded in the creation. In verse 16 Paul says, and he's quoting from Genesis, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Paul is going back to the Genesis creation account and he's saying this. He's saying, look, we are made in the image of God and that includes male and female. In spite of the challenges that many of us have with our masculinity or our femininity, that we are made as two creatures brought together as one and that we reflect God more wholly together. And that's true when men and women come together in a group like this, we more fully reflect God because God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so in God's original intention, it was man and woman made in the image of God, brought together, leaving their family to become one. And that involves commitment, and it's purposeful to fill the earth and reflect God. And sex within the confines of God's purposes can be and is very beautiful. It is a unity like the Trinity, and it can be an act of worship. 
But that's where sex is meant to be found, in the story. We need to go back to the story if we're gonna find our way in this very lost and divided culture. We're made to find our purpose and our identity in God. We're meant to find our story within his story. But we're fallen. We are sinful. We are fallen and broken creatures. And that means we should actually expect that our desires, our feelings, probably even our genetics need to be redeemed, need to be restored, need forgiveness and healing. And for many of us, as many of us have found in this struggle of life and God's purposes, fitting our lives into God's story is not easy. It can be incredibly painful, involve a lot of sacrifice. It's not natural because we are broken, and yet it is natural because it's how we are made. But because of how hard it can be for some of us to fit our story into God's, we instead write our own story. We look inward rather than to God to determine what is right and good and true about sex or about anything in life. But it makes me ask this question, as a culture, and even as individuals, are we really finding what we're looking for on our own? I think that we are made for more than sex. I think that we are made for relationship with God and with one another that is deeper than sex. In Genesis, which we had read, God speaking about the man says, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. And so when they were brought together, verse 25 of Genesis 2 says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think this is a fundamental, deep, inert desire that is in all of us. We desire to be known. We desire intimacy. We desire relational depth. We are made for it. And the challenge is that we have elevated romance and sex and confused sex with intimacy. So much so that how do we talk about the word intimacy? We talk about having intimate relationships with somebody in the same way that we say we're having sexual relationships with somebody. But that word intimacy is meant to be connected in close proximity, open and trusting, knowing and being known. I think that we are made for relationships, not for sex. Think about this. What friendship is enhanced and not complicated if you were to add sex to it? Or how about this question that Dale Keene asked? What sexual relationship after seven years is held together primarily by the sex? What relationship involving sex after seven years is held together primarily by the sex? Our true longing is actually to be naked and unashamed. And of course, when when that language is used, we think about it initially as the physicality, oh, they were having sex. But naked and unashamed is about your emotional and spiritual openness. I know you and you know me. 
And our sinfulness gets in the way, so we put up guards, we put up blockers. And there's very few people that actually know us deeply enough that we could be emotionally and spiritually naked before them. But that's what we're longing for when we turn to sex. We're longing to be known and have somebody know us deeply in all of our grossness, all of the shame that we have, all of our struggles, all of our weaknesses, everything we're embarrassed about, everything that we wrestle with in life, and not laugh at us, not reject us, not be bored with us, but love and accept us. That's what we want. This means we need God. We need union with the one who knows us, knows everything about us, and still loves us. That's why one of Paul's arguments in verse 19 and 20 is your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Why is your body not your own? Because God loves you. He gave up everything, including his son, for you. Look, we long for closeness and intimacy, for deep and lasting friendships. And now I'm just getting into the pragmatic here. I would love for us to have the kind of friendships that allow us to develop intimacy, to be naked and unashamed with one another. But that takes commitment and time to build trust. And we have very little time and we're individualists. It takes grace and humility to love each other, to put up with each other, to not be selfish and guarded. It takes sacrificing our autonomy and opening up our lives to interdependence. The church has not done this very well very often. But this is where CCV is going. Over the next five to ten years, this is going to be one of the things we're focusing on again and again and again. Because I think it's critical to us as humans and to the world outside that's longing for intimacy and community and friendship. Let's bring this to a close. We've talked too long. You may not agree with some of the things that I've said. You may be deeply offended and even hurt. And let me reach out to you and say, the best place to have something like this talked about is in a conversation, not in a speech. And so if you want to talk, and even that includes pouring out some of your own frustrations and anger, I am willing to sit down with you on that. Because this is not easy stuff and probably should not be dealt with purely in a, in a one-way street. You, on the other hand, may agree with me and wonder why I didn't go further and harder. (laughs) Same thing is true. We probably should sit down and talk. What I wanted to do this morning was simply open up the possibility that our cultural assumptions, our attitudes towards freedom and sex and how we make decisions may not be best. That instead, God's purposes may be. Open us up to the possibility that there is a greater intimacy and pleasure in knowing God and committed friendships than there is in sex. That there is the possibility, maybe the possibility, that there's more fulfilling freedom in the ways of God than in doing what I want. Open us up to the possibility that possibly somewhere out there in God's purposes, there is a holiday by the sea that we can barely imagine because we've spent our entire life in our happy little mud puddle. Let's pray.
God, I pray that you would forgive me where I have overstepped my bounds, where I have not upheld your word or done it in the way that you would want. Forgive all of us for that. But I pray as well that you would help those of us who have been hurt deeply, who have been abandoned or abused, who deal with shame or struggle with identity, aren't sure what life is about, to know that you love us, you do have a plan for our lives, even if we don't fully understand it right now. God, give us hope. We need your grace, and we are desperate for your love. Amen. as the ocean loving kindness as the flood when the prince of life are ransomed shed for us his precious Yeah.